Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the Radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered. It's a window in on the local stories that touch our lives. And there's a huge void in the traditional media covering this new faces of Boston. You may not be looking for a particular story, but when you hear about it, you're engaged. Under the radar means ahead of the curve. It's also perspectives. How does this particular story affect a community or a neighborhood? I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, fans of the movie Black Panther are not the only ones enthusiastic about its widespread appeal and now $1 billion payday. The Georgia film industry is also crowing about its big Marvel moneymaker, the action blockbuster which joins the ranks of The Hunger Games, the upcoming Avengers Infinity War, and TV shows like The Walking Dead were filmed in Georgia, enticed by the state's film tax credit. They are a huge ka for the Peach State's bottom line. Meanwhile, the tax credit remains a contentious issue in Massachusetts, with supporters of the mass film tax credit fighting to make the business case here. How has Georgia made the film tax credit a winning business model? And can Massachusetts do the same? Later in the show, Latinos are invisible in Massachusetts, says a recent Boston Globe article. How can Massachusetts amplify the voices and address the needs of its diverse Latino population? But first, joining me in the studio, Noah Berger, president of the Massachusetts Budget and Policy Center, an independent research organization that produces nonpartisan policy research, analysis, and data-driven recommendations. Welcome, Noah. Great to be here. And Robert Tannenwall, lecturer at Brandeis University's Heller School for Social Policy and Management. Robert spent 28 years as an officer at the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston and founded the New England Public Policy Center in 2005. Hello, Robert. Hi, nice to be here. Thanks. I'm glad to have you. And joining me from the studios of WABE in Atlanta, Georgia, Peter Staphopoulos, a partner at Bennett Thrasher. Peter specializes in state and local tax practice, and in 2008, he helped draft a portion of the Georgia Entertainment Investment Act, the state's film tax credit. Welcome, Peter. Hi, how you doing? So let's jump right in. We should say that there are 31 states that offer this tax credit in various configurations. In Massachusetts, it works this way, where there's a 25% tax credit. The producer spends $20 million, and we pay $5 million of that cost. That's the essence of it. And the reason you offer it is to get someone to come to the state and spend lots of money. I've always maintained that they never have done a study that looks at the broad inclusion of everything that the state may be benefiting, both the direct and the indirect. So by direct, what I mean is the film producers, the actors, the folks that shoot the film, all of that. That's obviously, those are direct jobs. But there are so many people that have so much work who do not work on the movies, and communities have done quite well and benefited from that. So let me start with you, Professor. Talk about why you think that this is not a good deal for Massachusetts. Well, every year that the Mass DOR has done this study, right up through the end of 2016, it has come to the same conclusion. But that's not the issue, how many dollars of additional revenue that the state collects by virtue of the credit. I think that 
the goal of any film tax credit, regardless of the state, is not how much it grows its film industry per se, but how much it creates good jobs and income for the people of the state as a whole in a cost-effective manner. And all these DOR studies have shown that to create a job, you got to spend $100,000, $80,000, $90,000, $110,000 a year to create it in foregone tax revenue. That's my guest, Robert Tannenwell. He's a lecturer at Brandeis University's Heller School for Social Policy and Management. But Professor Tannenwell, they're only measuring those people that directly work actually, with the industry. Can I just jump yeah, in? Yeah, The DOR study, which is done every year, actually does measure um, not just the direct effects, but the indirect effects as well. It does it with a multiplier effect. It says that for every dollar spent in Massachusetts, that money then is respent in the economy in exactly the ways that you described. And even when accounting for that indirect effect, it determines that of every dollar we spend on the tax credit, the state gets back less than 20 cents in additional taxes based on all that economic activity. One of the reasons for that is that a lot of the money that's spent here actually doesn't stay in our economy. Think about it, as you mentioned, a $20 million Mm -hmm. film, let's say $8 million of that is the movie star's salary. Through this tax credit, the state pays $2 million of that movie star's salary. That movie star is not likely to spend that $2 million in Massachusetts during the eight-week or whatever amount of time it takes to shoot the movie. They're going to take that money with them back to California or wherever they live and spend it in that state's economy. So one of the, the issues with this tax credit is it's an industry where, by its very nature, a lot of the money spent, even though technically it's spent here if you pay a movie star when they're in Massachusetts, that money leaves the economy right away and doesn't produce those kind of multiplier effects that we would like to see. That's my guest, Noah Berger. He's president of the Massachusetts Budget and Policy Center. So I'm pushing back on you because it's not just the actor. While the actor was here making the whatever millions of dollar salary, there are all these other people that benefited. The actor went to the drugstore. All of the little businesses that are attached or not attached, really, to the movie industry benefited by their being here. People have expanded their business because of the movie's regular appearance here in the state. So I don't see that being measured is what I'm saying. You can measure the salary of the actors and make a perfectly good case, but the other stuff, that to me has not been measured. I can't see it. So what the Department of Revenue does to try to to capture that is they say, well, look at all the spending that occurred in the state. So the money the film spends on each of those items and then actually add a multiplier effect to that to say that money, you know, recirculates in the state economy. And that's part of their methodology. I'm just looking at it now. It's the amount of new Massachusetts wage and non-wage spending generated by the tax incentives and additional Massachusetts economic activity generated by new wage and non-wage spending based on a multiplier effect. So they do take into account that spending, and even given that, um, don't find it to be a particularly effective way to strengthen our economy. You're definitely right that there are some businesses that benefit. People buy stuff while they're here. The film producers buy products while they're here. The issue is the scale. That is, we're spending $80 million a year of public money, and all of the studies indicate that the return on that investment is very small. And the other thing to remember is, any time the state spends $80 million of money, it's going to have a positive economic effect. So spending $80 million on movies will lead to economic activity. If you were to spend the same $80 million you know, building highways or repairing our roads or expanding access to early education, you'd be putting that $80 million into the economy. And those teachers or those construction workers would also be spending that money in the economy, much as people who work on films would. But at the end of the day, with a film... 
the film crew is gone and the film you know, makes money or doesn't make money, we, even though we, the state puts in a quarter of the cost of making the film, certainly don't get to share in the profits of the film. But if we put that same money into building or repairing a road or a bridge or the subway system or hiring early educators, then we have something tangible. We have that fixed road. We have thousands of kids with access to early education, in addition to all of the positive economic benefits of creating jobs and hiring people to, to do important work. Again, that's Noah Berger, president of the Massachusetts Budget and Policy Center. You can hear that Noah is not a fan of the tax credit. <laughs> I am a fan of the tax credit, and I have someone on my side from Georgia who's going to tell you exactly why it works. I should mention that WGBH benefits from the tax credit plan, but I was in favor of this before I actually understood that relationship. But before, Peter, before you speak, I want to just play a little excerpt of some of the many, many film and uh, television productions that are done in Georgia so people get a sense of the depth and the breadth of what's going on there. You get to decide what kind of king you are going to be. Here is the next great battle. Selma's the place, and they ready. Tell me just one thing I should know about you. I don't like to be called Big Mike. Archer, come to think of it, where were you last night? Ask your wife. You know Will? Do you know where he is? There was an idea to bring together a group of remarkable people to see if we could become something more. You're sure going to Hilltop's the best plan. All of you in one place together. will be their worst damn nightmare. So the quick will recognize Black Panther, Selma, The Blind Side, Archer, Stranger Things, Avengers, The Infinity War, that's coming up, and The Walking Dead, which is a cash cow in Georgia. Is it not, Peter? It, it is. And so going back to the point about whether these studies measure all the direct and indirect effects of uh, these film tax credit programs, Obviously, I'm a little biased because, you know, I work in this industry and I, I derive my income from this industry. But I, I don't think a lot of the studies that have come out capture all the indirect benefits. So, for example, this is anecdotal, but the town of Sonoya, Georgia, was pretty much a dead end, dying downtown. Everything was boarded up. And then The Walking Dead showed up. And, you know, this massively successful show, which is running eight plus seasons, utterly revitalized the town. So there was a building boom. There was a residential construction boom. So not only was the downtown completely transformed with restaurants and, and businesses and hotels, but the surrounding residential areas became very popular. People wanted to buy homes near the filming of, of this hugely successful show. And there's been massive infrastructure investment in Georgia, which once again is usually not captured in these kinds of studies. So everybody's probably heard about Pinewood uh, has set up the largest soundstage setup in North America, but there has been 10 other massive soundstage studios that have sprung up. And you walk around these soundstages, and a lot of them, frankly, put Burbank, California to shame when you're on the lot at you know, some of the, the studios out there. You know, in if addition, I can interrupt you, Peter, I just yeah. want to make the point. Specifically in the town of Sonoya, there were eight businesses downtown, Professor and Noah Berger, and that was in 1998. There are now over 50, all available space leased up. You cannot tell me that's a small thing. It's in one small town. By the way, the one down the road, Grantsville, too, came back from the dead, literally, because of the Walking Dead 1 project. 
one in Georgia. So I'll say, I, I don't <laughs> no, know the no, I, I want Peter to finish his point. Go ahead, Peter. Finish your point. <laughs> sure. So, you know, once again, you know, what I, I think some of these studies fail to capture is uh, you, you talk about the number of people working in the state and whether it's a transitory job. Georgia, when we started this program, probably had about one or two professional crews that were able to, to service a large film. At this point, I've heard we're somewhere between 15 to 20 crews deep. So basically, all crew people in the surrounding southeast region pretty much have, have moved to Georgia. And, you know, yes, each movie or television show is a discrete project which has a beginning or an end, but these people live here full time in Georgia. So we've sucked up film crews uh, here in, in Georgia, uh, you know, from as far north as Virginia Beach. And, you know, we've really been helped by the fact that North Carolina killed their film program. They've now reinstituted it, but they killed it. Florida killed their film tax credit program. Louisiana put a cap on theirs in, in a way that was a little bit damaging to their industry. And so Georgia has been the, the beneficiary. And I think we've pretty much sucked all the film crews regionally into the state. And so I, they're pretty much permanent. And, and, and television shows are, once again, semi-permanent, although, although a feature film once again, people do come and go. People who work on a television show, a lot of the cast and creative people uh, have ended up buying condos or apartments here, or townhouses here in Atlanta, and have become part of the creative economy here. So anyway, a lot of this is, uh, is anecdotal, but I'll just finish with this thought, which is I don't think traditional studies, which are based on a money multiplier model, capture things like infrastructure, property tax revenues going up as a result of revitalization of areas, uh, marketing benefits worldwide of your state being featured and in, in, you know, being the location of these films, and just generally uh, increased economic profile of your state worldwide. That's my guest, Peter Stathopoulos. He's a partner at consulting firm Bennett Thrasher, and he helped draft a portion of the Georgia Entertainment Investment Act, which is the state's film tax credit. I'm going to let both of you jump on me because I know you're ready, my other guests. Uh, but first, uh, let me remind everybody who's in the studio with me. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and I'm here with me are Noah Berger, president of the Massachusetts Budget and Policy Center, Robert Tannenwall, economist and lecturer at Brandeis University, and Peter Peter Stathopoulos, tax attorney in Atlanta, Georgia. And we're discussing the film tax credit programs of Massachusetts and Georgia. Okay, Professor, please respond to Peter. Well, I am uh, noticed that a lot of the evidence that was cited is anecdotal, which is typical of supporters of film tax credits. But how much did the state of Georgia grant in film tax credits Let's say last year was it 200 million, 500 million? It's probably in the, in the realm of 300 million or so. All right, so let me just add this though: it has grown from 240 million net earnings in 2007 to a current 9.5 billion in Georgia. So. $9.5 billion what? Money, money, but revenue. Money, you're talking about spending? You're talking no, about no, no, no. I'm talking about the return on investment. I'm talking so about that's, that's what it went from. That, I, think that's a, I think that's from a study put out by somebody in the film industry or working for the but, film industry. The official studies of this, whenever they're done, find that for states, it's ultimately a loser in terms of the Not state Georgia. Funding. Georgia is number, number three after New York and California. So, no, it's absolutely true that it's you know? very... I, no, no, you're absolutely right. It's very good for the film industry. The film industry does very well with these tax that. credits. Can I finish quickly? Um, the issue is the cost to the state for, right. for doing that. And ultimately, any business, if you're going to say, we're going to pay a quarter of all of your costs, which is what these tax credit programs do, 
it would be good for the industry you're subsidizing. The question is, is there a return on investment for the state? And the reason that proponents tend to cite anecdotes or specific examples is that whenever there have been serious economic studies, they find that ultimately it's a money loser. And when we say anecdotal here, just to be clear for everybody, it doesn't mean that that's not evidence. It means nobody's done a sort of a constructed study where you compare this against something else. The Massachusetts but Department of Revenue does take into account things like infrastructure. The Massachusetts Department of Revenue does state-of-the-art studies every year. All right. Now, I agree with Peter that not every benefit is captured in that study, just like not every cost in the revenue foregone is captured in that study. But I know of no other study or set of studies that have taken place from 2006 through the end of 2016 that do a more thorough, careful, thoughtful job at estimating the costs and benefits to the state as a whole, which is what really matters. How many jobs are being created for Massachusetts residents? How many cents are created per dollar of revenue foregone? What's the cost effectiveness? The film industry, I know, benefits. Of course it benefits. The state comes in and puts in 30%, or here in Massachusetts, 25%. Sure, the industry is going to swell. But the film industry has a couple of uh, characteristics that worry me. First. It's footloose. You mean you it's transitory? Yeah. You go anywhere. But Peter just explained that. Right. 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 And it is uh, risky. So it needs subsidization. It's always had subsidization, even before it got it from the states. It used to get it from the studios. Now it gets it from the states. So if you have this kind of degree of subsidization, sure, the film industry is going to soar. But at what expense to the state? What expense to the people of Massachusetts, to the people of Georgia? Why doesn't Georgia have a study? I would think that it would want to have a study if it's spending so much money in revenue foregone on a subsidy of that size. Well, what I do know is that Georgia has a budget surplus now, <laughs> so a healthy one, and that $9.5 billion is not a made-up figure, so there we are. Let me also say, let me just introduce this as an element again. When I did a story about this before, I interviewed a woman who has an organization that, again, not captured by the way that you would capture. So her name is Nancy Connell. She's founder of an organization called Project Home Again, and she talked to me in 2015 about how the donations made from the movies turned her project, her organization, was able to help dozens of other people. It is actually supporting her business in a way that she could not have supported before. Let's listen to what she had to say. The last movie that we got stuff from, we got beautiful China. We will be able to sell the China for about $1,200. That means we'll be able to buy about 1,200 dinner plates. That will provide plates for 200 families to eat dinner on who didn't have any place to eat dinner. If we have one expensive couch, that can translate into buying 10 beds for 10 kids who are sleeping on the floor. So 12 truckloads, it's just incredible. Now, I am not saying that that one business offsets a tax credit. What I'm saying is I believe there's many, many more Nancy Canals that are not captured in the study. That's all I'm saying. And that for me, as a person that lives in Massachusetts and I'm looking at the dollars going to other states who do invest in this, and we're not the only state, by the way. There are 31 states invested in tax credits. It must be doing something. They haven't pulled them yet. I'm curious, Noah, to know why in Massachusetts we'll happily throw some money at an Amazon or happily throw some money at a um, General Electric, let's start there, as an incentive. But that's not considered a bad thing. But if you do it on something like this, which has a possibility of growth in the way that it has in Georgia, somehow it's weird. 
Um, first of all, I actually think the best way to build a state economy is to invest in the people of the state. So things like education and higher education, and also making sure that our basic public systems, like our transportation systems, our roads and our subways, that those things are working. And I think if states focus on the fundamentals, that's how you build a strong economy. I actually don't think it's a good idea for us to be throwing money at businesses in general. Whenever there are studies done on that, it doesn't prove to be the most effective way to grow an economy. Okay, so at least you're consistent. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'll also say that the film tax credit is orders of magnitude more generous than anything else that we do. So we have an investment tax credit that's, I think, 3% of the amount that a company invests in building a new facility. The film tax credit is 25%. It's not 25% of their taxes. It's 25% of the total amount they spend. So if you spend, you know, $40 million, we basically send you a check for $10 million. It goes through a complicated tax system. But that's just not sustainable. We don't do that for any other industry that I can think of. And if we were to do it a lot, the state would run out of money. I think when you contrast Massachusetts and a state like Georgia, our model has always been we invest in our people. We have some of the best public schools in America. If you look at all the states in the country and you just rank them based on percentage of the population with a college degree and average median wages, there's an overwhelming pattern. The states that invest in their people create highly skilled workers are the states that prosper. And the states that throw money at private businesses to try to attract them end up often in a, in a downward spiral where they can't then afford to make the kinds of really positive investments that make a difference. And just to put this in context, $80 million, which we spend, which is a fraction of what Georgia spends, that's the budget for about four community colleges. We spend about $20 million on a community college that educates you know, 10,000 kids. So this is a scale of money spent on a particular industry that's frankly never going to be the core of the Massachusetts economy that even at the levels we're spending now takes away from our ability to do other important things. And if we were to double or triple or quadruple it, it would have significant effects on what the state could do in areas where the state really does have an important responsibility, like our own infrastructure and our own people. Peter, I'm interested in how you were able to overcome some of the kind of pushback that both the professor and Noah have demonstrated here, because I know it was certainly there at the beginning. And again, I know about what the tourism has brought there as well, and that's part of what's happening in Massachusetts. We've encouraged that. And at least Noah's consistent, because I am infuriated by the fact that we are on a short list of 20 cities, meaning Boston and Somerville, for Amazon, in which every city on that list absolutely is giving up big money to bring that corporation here or to try to get it here. And nobody's complaining about that, or very few people are complaining. But here we have something that can be built, and yet we have a lot of pushback. So, Peter, what turned the tide in, in Georgia? Well, let me, let me make a couple points, which is uh, this. If this industry weren't so valuable and if a creative economy wasn't so critical to a 21st century state economy, you know, I note that California and Georgia have both uh, implemented fairly large film tax credit programs. And, you know, uh, New York, I think, is somewhat similar, I would think, to Massachusetts in terms of its you know, level of education of the populace, et, et cetera, some of the parallels that, that were drawn. And yet New York has chosen to have a large film tax credit program to protect its entertainment industry. California has reluctantly implemented a, a large-scale entertainment tax credit to protect its creative economy. So it, obviously, states can differ as to the, the relative value of, of a creative economy. I will say this from the theory to the practical. Georgia is experiencing a very, very large budget surplus and the industry has created a boom in higher education in Georgia. In order to meet the demands of the industry in Georgia and the shortage of crews, Georgia had to create an emergency educational program 
which is called the Georgia Film Academy, which is a coalition of the University System of Georgia and Technical College System of Georgia in order to crank out experienced people to work on uh, film crews and television crews. And SCAD, the Savannah College of Art and Design, has massively expanded and resulted in the redevelopment of huge parts of uh, Savannah, which is uh, one of the cities in Georgia which has benefited from this industry. So from a theory standpoint, economists pretty much usually are not fans of state tax credits, period. They tend to point out that they're beggar thy neighbor policies and they, they you know, overall are usually in opposition. But I will point out generally that the states that do have incentive or uh, tax credit programs tend to be very successful in attracting business. And you know, Georgia's economy is doing extraordinarily well. And you know, we have a very, very large $2 billion plus budget surplus. The professor is writing so hard over here. He's so mad at me. So I'm going to let him say whatever he has to say in response. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. And I'm here with Noah Berger of the Massachusetts Budget and Policy Center, the fuming Robert Tannenwald of Brandeis <laughs> University, and Peter Strathopoulos, a tax attorney in Atlanta, Georgia. We're talking about the benefits and downfalls of state film tax credit programs. Massachusetts has one. I should say before you speak, Professor, that uh, we reached out to David Hartman, who's the director of the Massachusetts Production Coalition. It's part of his gig to try to, you know, boost this in Massachusetts. And this conversation is so dicey, he would not respond to our many, many requests for him to be a part of this conversation. So now, Professor. <laughs> Thank you. So my main point is how numbers get thrown around without really looking at them carefully. So I believe you brought up, Callie, that Georgia's number three. Mm -hmm. What three? No, film employment? In terms of when you talk about listing the places where film production is highest, it's New York, California, and Georgia. Right. So California accounts for about 52%, New York 21%, and there are about eight or nine states then. And what percentage of the total, but yeah. what percentage of film well, I, I don't have it broken down three. like that, so I can't answer that question. But, but you cited number three. No, no, but but no, number but three in terms, of what? No, in terms of the amount of money that's being brought into the state per the investment. So it's topping up. So, for example, Louisiana at one point was quite high up, and then they lost track, as Peter explained earlier, because they did away with theirs and it came back. And so now they revised what they're doing. So I can't tell you based on your pie chart exactly where the percentage is, but I can tell you that it's a $9.5 billion. <laughs> so what? I don't know what else to say. $9.5 billion of what? I don't know what you're talking about. All Are right, you talking about said, spending? Yeah. Are you talking no, about that's, that's what's earned in yeah, the according, state. According to the Georgia Department of Economic Development, there is a $9.5 billion economic impact of the industry in Georgia which is based on the direct spend plus a multiplier effect, as you, as you discussed. Okay. And how, so how many jobs for Georgia residents are created per dollar of revenue foregone, including all these multiplier effects mm -hmm. on both sides? Can anyone tell me that? I can tell you that from Massachusetts. It's 438. I know what it is. 438 what? Jobs. That's no, the I number I have. The, it's 438. The dollar, the amount of money spent by the state per job created for Massachusetts residents that's not what I asked. I oh, asked I thought talk. you said how many jobs? Like okay. you know, okay. roughly eighty to hundred thousand mm -hmm. dollars. Is there a number that someone can find for Georgia for that, and why not? It's a pretty important question. That's the bottom line. And then I don't know. As Abbott far as I'm going to ask this question, does WGBH benefit from Massachusetts? I oh, I said that. Oh, oh, I said that at the beginning. But I didn't. I, when I became very a fan of this, I didn't. I actually didn't know that. How but could I, you benefit if you're not a for-profit corporation or a company? I'm sorry, I don't understand it. What are you saying again? Well, it's a tax credit, so how could you benefit? 
that piece of it, I do All right, not so know. I'll explain. If yes, I, yeah. okay. So if you don't make money on your film or you're a nonprofit and somehow you earn it, you can sell it or you can oh, send yes, it back to the state and get 90% right. refund. Right, right, right. So it's a straight subsidy. It's not a tax credit. And it can go to companies like insurance companies and banks and all kinds of companies. And they have five years to carry them forward. And so that creates a lot of uncertainty in budgeting. So my main point is we have a lot of imprecision. I'm not surprised there are a lot of ad hoc examples that are shown of benefits. This is typical of proponents of film tax credits. All I'd like to see, even if they're imprecise, as an attempt at estimating what really matters, which is jobs and income for the people who finance the subsidy. I'm with you on that. But be that as it may, my question has always been, what else happens outside of that that has not yet been captured? I get the multiplier. I get that. But as I've said here, there are all these other businesses. I don't see them so measure. I'll just say but, that but, but let me ask the professor one question, because Noah, you, you're on record. How do you feel about, then, the incentives that are given to the Amazons of the world or whatever to bring them in? Because it's the same principle. It's just a choice about which, who you're going to support. The film industry representatives are very blunt, at least when they testify in Massachusetts. They say, and I'm quoting, we don't care about your state. You give us the money, you give us the subsidy, we'll stay here. If you withdraw it, we're gone. And that is true. Georgia, great, but it's in perpetual competitive purgatory. If it cuts its credit, goodbye, just like Louisiana. So with Amazon, you're okay with that because no, they're not... No, they pr I prefer not to. Okay. The only difference is it's not as footloose. Once it comes here, a GE, it creates buildings, it's harder for it to leave. But no, I don't like tax credit subsidies for any business. Okay. Are you a fan of the movies? <laughs> not the movies. I love Sorry. the movies. Can I just jump back to yes, this, to this no. big question about sort of what are the right ways to grow an economy? And um, there's some talk about the Georgia budget surplus. I think in important ways, Georgia has made serious mistakes. That is, if you look at, just looking at education funding in Georgia between 2008 and 2015, which is the most recent data I have, they cut funding for education, K-12 education, by 16%. And if you think about a per-pupil basis, and if you think about what that matter means for the future of a state economy, that's really dangerous. They may be running temporary surpluses, but that could well be because they're not making the kinds of investments in their people. Let me let Peter that respond really to that. Peter, you want to respond future. to that? I'll just say that last year, Georgia was ranked the number one place in the United States to do business. We're, we are a business-friendly uh, state. We do try to attract industry. Look, I, I recognize reasonable people can disagree about the efficacy of, of tax incentives, but I do think there's a gap between economic theory and practice. I don't think the studies, I haven't looked specifically at Massachusetts, so I, I can't on an educated basis uh, opine on it. But most of the studies that I've seen in other states can't capture some of the benefits such as international marketing recognition, property tax revenues going up, and other soft benefits that are difficult to capture. And just one other point, I, I get the idea that, look, you create a film credit and they show up for a while and then you, you're, you're you run into a budget deficit and you got to cut it and everybody leaves. I will tell you that has not been our experience in Georgia. More and more producers and showrunners and creatives are setting up companies here because this is where the action is. So I'm familiar with at least three or four television development companies that have left Los Angeles and set up shop uh, here. 
And, uh, you know, the idea is uh, this is going to be their headquarters. They're going to have a sales office in L.A. So it, it's not purely a transitory business. But Peter, it, do you think that yeah. if the state were to eliminate its film tax credit, those folks would stay? Look, it would very much damage the program and, and a lot of them would leave. But I will say that it's not as simple as they show up for the credit and then they go back home to LA. The only point I'm trying to make is a lot of them are moving here and becoming permanent residents of the state. And I, I genuinely believe, once again, I, this is anecdotal, but production has generated a wave of infrastructure development, which is now generating a wave of content creation people moving here. And I think that intellectual property is going to be very valuable for the citizens of Georgia. And once again, that's difficult to capture in some of the studies, which are just very linear and concrete and tend to focus on direct dollar spent money multiplier effect and revenue foregone. Peter, just I, I just want to get this, this one point clear. What changed the minds of some critics about this program? Because we're in the discussion point that you all were in when, the, when it was first introduced in Georgia. I think it was the idea that it would help further Georgia's image worldwide. I mean, anecdotally, once again, you know, having films like Forrest Gump filmed in Savannah, Georgia, there were instances where our governor was in China in some small town trying to uh, you know, sell an economic development project in Georgia. And the, the Chinese officials were like, oh, of course, Georgia, everybody knows you know, where Forrest Gump was filmed. So I think it was the fact that in addition to the you know, direct money multiplier effects that one can measure, uh, I think people were convinced that there are other intangible marketing benefits that are difficult to capture, which put it over the top. And um, you know, I, I think also we just have to go by experience. And, and so far, the program has not had a negative impact on our state economy in terms of uh, revenues. I think for Massachusetts, I'd rather be known as the education state than the Forrest Gump state. I think that's our calling card internationally. <laughs> that's a good I one. think you can that's do both, one. Noah. We're going to keep talking here in Massachusetts, as you, can, as you can tell. And I really thank you for bringing the perspective of Georgia. And um, maybe we'll get this uh, study that'll shut everybody up around this table <laughs> eventually. <laughs> thank you all for joining me today. <laughs> Noah Berger is the president of the Massachusetts Budget and Policy Center. Robert Tannenwall is a lecturer at Brandeis University's Heller School for Social Policy and Management. And Peter Stathopoulos is a partner at the consulting firm Bennett Thrasher in Atlanta, Georgia. Coming up, is Massachusetts the worst state for Latinos? A recent study and a Boston Globe article support that claim. Latinos in the Bay State say they feel invisible. So how can local organizations, businesses, and the government make Massachusetts more welcoming for Latinos? That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanyap. That's Creole for something extra. Massachusetts is the worst state for Hispanics and Latinos, according to a study by 24-7 Wall Street. In Boston, Hispanics and Latinos make up 20% of the city's population, but they are rarely represented in higher power committees, nonprofit boards, or government offices. 
Add the largest wage gap in the country and a language barrier to the mix, the result is a population the Boston Globe described as invisible. Can this change? Joining me in the studio, Dr. Lorna Rivera, Associate Professor of Women's and Gender Studies and Latino Studies at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, and the Director of the Gaston Institute for Latino Community Development and Public Policy. Welcome, Lorna. Thank you for having me. I'm so glad to have you. Also with me, Alex Oliver Davila, Executive Director of Sociedad Latina and co-founder and member of the Greater Boston Latino Network. Hello, Alex. Hello. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to have both of you. Well, this is a very sobering conversation. Let me just frame it for people who maybe missed the Globe article, um, which pulled together a lot of these statistics. But The median income for Latino households statewide is $39,742, while white households bring in $82,000, the largest gap in the country, according to the census data and these studies, as we've just mentioned. Only a quarter of Latino heads of household own their own homes in the state, compared to 69% of whites. Black households, by comparison, by the way, in Massachusetts, have a median income of 46,381 and 34% own homes. That's not so much better, but the point is that when we look at the statistics and Latinos or Hispanics are at the bottom of the scale for a number of factors that make a difference about how one lives in Massachusetts and whether one succeeds. So I guess the first question for me would be, how is invisibility harmful not just to the ethnic communities of Hispanics and Latinos, but really to the larger greater Boston and Massachusetts communities. And Lorna, I'll start with you. Well, I think there's definitely a lot of harmful effects that um, were also, you know, spotlighted in, um, you know, the Boston Globe's uh, spotlight series as well on on the inequalities between Blacks and, and in the city of Boston as well. But I think that for Latinos, that invisibility is also challenging when we sort of erase the differences among the different Latino subgroups. Some are immigrants, some are native-born, some are refugees. And I think that we tend to put all Latinos as if they're one monolithic group and erasing those differences and the challenges and the needs and opportunities as well among our various sub-ethnic communities, I think is harmful. Same question to you, Alex. I just want to point out before you speak that there are no statewide elected officials who are Hispanic or Latino. We've got some folks in the legislature. Of course, Jeffrey Sanchez is the new powerful leader of the Ways and Means Committee, and that cannot be discounted. That's a big deal. Latinos are 40% of the students in greater Boston, but 10% of teachers. And I know you know this very well because you're a member of the Boston School Committee. So talk to me about invisibility and its harmful effects beyond even the confines of the ethnic communities themselves. I think that if we do not have representation, as you mentioned earlier, it's very dangerous not to have that because we are constantly making policies that affect everyone. And it just has been shown in research that when you actually have representation and you have people that come from our community and bring that voice, that there will be less harmful effects in terms of policies that are made. 
our young population continues to grow, and we are going to have the largest, we have the largest young population right now. And we really need to make sure with this growth that young people are staying in Boston, that young people feel included. We are missing out on a huge opportunity in terms of the future workforce of Massachusetts, of Boston. And if we look at Massachusetts being the worst, and we look at who's the best, um, like Jacksonville, Florida, I think there's a lot of lessons that can be learned. But at the end of the day, we suffer because of lack of diversity, and we will suffer as a city, as a state, if we do not have a workforce that is diverse and a workforce that stays, given that Latinos have really fueled the economic growth of the city of Boston. And that should be underscored, because every data point that comes up with regard to economics in Massachusetts, Latinos are a huge part of that growth. So in other words, remove them from the scene, whether you see them or not, in a visible way. It is a huge impact for everybody in this community. And Lorna, we don't hear that. I don't think people understand that. And I'm not quite sure why, because the other point I wanted to make is that there's a large Latino community here. So in your mind, people are listening and thinking, well, how can you be invisible when there are so many people? How do you address that? Yeah. And again, I think it goes back to also what, you know, Alex just said about political power and representation. There certainly are communities uh, like Colombians, for example, that own a lot of the small businesses in East Boston, Brazilians in Framingham, Cape Verdean owned businesses as well. So there's a large sector of our community that is entrepreneurial, that is self-employed and provide, you know, services that others don't provide to our communities. So I think there is a lot of potential there that is overlooked in some ways. There's discriminatory lending to um, many of our leaders in the community that want to start their own businesses. And so I think that there's a lot of work that we need to do in terms of looking at, you know, banks and their lending practices and not just for small businesses, but, you know, and I'm sure Alex can speak to this as well as with affordable housing and how gentrification is making our communities invisible Mm. as well. That's my guest, Dr. Lorna Rivera. She's Associate Professor of Women's and Gender Studies and Latino Studies at UMass Boston and Director of the Gaston Institute for Latino Community Development and Public Policy. So, Alex, over to you again. Follow up on that, if you will, because I really think it's hard. People hear the word invisible and they say, hmm, you know, how do I reconcile that with the numbers? Mm-hmm. I think you just made a great point about Jeffrey Sanchez being our only uh, person of political power. I think if you look across the board at boards of higher education, boards of foundations, healthcare, you will see that there are no Latinos. And if any, there are few and they're usually in a, in a put in a place of representing everyone. 40% of Boston Public School students are Latino, and yet we have less than 10% mm-hmm. of teachers and administrators. It's also lumped together with other populations, so we really need to even dig deeper. And I think if you look at the explosion of the Latino population, and if you look at community-based organizations like the one that I run, Sociedad Latina, and others that are part of the Latino network, it is shocking when we see the explosion of our population, and yet 
in the last 20 years, we've had so many closings of Latino organizations. And so it sounds insane to say that we are invisible, but we are. We do not have representation in major decision-making roles within any sector um, that we can look at. And school committee is another perfect example. There are two school committee members that are Latino out of seven, and we have 40% of the young people are Latino. So I think we have a long, long, long ways to go. And I would also say that in Boston specifically, We are often invisible because of the history of Boston, Mm -hmm. um, all the racial tension. It's always been a black and white city, and Mm -hmm. so we often get forgotten. There is a panel that is happening in the next month at a major foundation that talks about leaders of color, and the panel does not include a Latino as an example. In Boston? In Boston. I won't say who it is. They'll know who they are when they Mm -hmm. listen to the show. Has anybody pointed that out? Yes. We we have brought it. But again, I think this is what we're talking about. There's, it after is the there's point. a paradigm yeah. shift yes. that needs yeah. to happen yeah. here that it is not just about having one person on your board. There's a mind shift, a paradigm that needs to happen. You know, we need to think about why, again, is it important to have our representation given our population growth? It's just better for the city in, mm-hmm. in general. And that's my guest, Alex Oliver Davila, executive director of Sociedad Latina and co-founder and member of the Greater Boston Latino Network. Let me follow up on the piece about the students and the numbers there, because you've mentioned that there was a missed opportunity. We had a chance to hire a Latino education professional with, everybody says, just not me, impeccable credentials. And instead, we went back to pattern, some would say. In fact, one of the sums would be Shirley Leong, who writes about this frequently in the Boston Globe, and hired a white male to take this position. This is no diss of him, his strong credentials himself. But all things being equal, if we're talking about building a city that looks like everybody, then that was a missed opportunity. A huge missed Mm. opportunity. And Commissioner Riley, congratulations to him. I know him, and I I also think he's a great candidate as well. But I do think it's a huge missed opportunity when you look at her record and all of the things she's done around dual language, around bilingual education. She brings a different framework. I say the the candidate that didn't get the the job. The candidate that didn't get the job. I think a perfect example is, you know, I have a daughter who's eight years old and she has never had a Latino teacher in all her years of schooling. And I think that that does play on your psyche when you are going to school and you're constantly not seeing people that look like you or have an experience like you. That can be very detrimental when young people are going to school and they're asked to check their culture at the door. That can really play a really detrimental effect on your psyche, which has, you know, I think, long outcomes in terms of less resiliency, et cetera. So I think it was a missed opportunity, uh, and I'm very saddened by it. I'm Callie Crossley, and you're listening to Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. My guests are Lorna Rivera, associate professor at UMass Boston and director of the Gaston Institute for Latino Community Development and Public Policy, and Alex Oliver Davila, executive director of Sociedad Latina and co-founder member of the Greater Boston Latino Network. And we're discussing how Massachusetts and local organizations can begin to think about the issue of invisibility with regards to Hispanic and Latino communities in Greater Boston and Massachusetts. One of the issues that keeps coming up is English as a barrier in affecting some parts of the community. If you would, Lorna, speak about that a bit and Is that overstated? Is there another way to look at that? What can happen there that that issue in and of itself moves off the table as a barrier? Well, I do think that this is certainly is an important issue in our community. 
As we know, um, recently in uh, July, the Look Act was passed by the legislature to really begin to give more options to public school districts to be able to offer more dual language programs and and be able to teach the youth in their native language in their bilingual programs. I think that that's going to give more opportunities, at least for our youth. But I also, I used to direct a GED program, and I used to be on the board of directors for the Mass Coalition for Adult Education. And we've always had very long waiting lists for adult basic education and ESOL programs. And so we do need to do English more. as a second language. Yeah, excuse yes. me, mm-hmm. yes. English mm-hmm. as a second um, other language. Mm-hmm. And also having that be more in workplace environments because, though again, the waiting lists at community colleges, for example, are really long. And as was quoted in that Globe article, mm-hmm. one of the participants, you know, we also need to look at how we do English instruction. Mm-hmm. Um, that has to be context-based and not just focused on the grammar, because it does take a long time. So I do think that there may be more opportunities now, at least in the public schools in the K-12 through system. But I think that as well, you know, we need to really celebrate being multilingual mm-hmm. in, in the multicultural societies. We're the one of the nations that really is shameful in terms of its valuing on being able to speak and think and, and relate in multiple languages. So until we affirm that as a cultural asset, we have a long way to go. Alex, I see you nodding. Did you want to add something to that? Yeah, I mean, I agree with everything uh, Lorna has said. I'm, I would add that beyond the English is a huge barrier, not just for our young people, but also for adults. And we do need to have more programs and more funding in that. I think some of the other pieces around housing and being able to buy a house and being able to have a job that earns a good wage. I think these are areas that we re- we need to take some serious looks at, as well as education, higher education, and access. Well, something that came to my attention, I don't know why I hadn't thought about it before, but in discussions about Massachusetts giving aid to Puerto Rico, what came up in the research is that a lot of Puerto Ricans who are Americans have moved to the mainland either temporarily or permanently. They've come with skills. There are professionals who come with skills. Massachusetts does not have a a direct reciprocity, for example, for nurses. So what I mean by that is if you're a nurse in Massachusetts and you go to Utah, generally you just can set up shop as a nurse in Utah because they accept your credentials. That's called reciprocity. But it doesn't happen with people coming from the U.S. territory into Massachusetts. And so there you have a backlog of professionals with skills can always be used in the state, nurses certainly, so they can't work. So that, I would imagine, is adding to a level of invisibility in a different class of people, the professional class of people. Lorna, would you speak to that? Yeah, oh gosh, I can't tell you how many teachers I know from Puerto Rico that, you know, are just not able to pass the MTEL, the test, um, because of their English, Mm -hmm. but have had, you know, dozens of years um, and end up working with provisional licenses and moving from one school to the other or how many Haitian people, you know, that have that nursing background. So we definitely need to think about beyond just, you know, like how higher education institutions have been able to really assess, you know, transfer credits, for example, from other institutions. I think the business sector and other industries need to really validate and value, you know, these licenses because I think in the Latino community as well, 
not just from Puerto Rico, but we also have middle classes, you know, from Colombia and other nations that, again, we're doctors, lawyers, and are not able to get jobs here. And that's really a shame. So I do think that's an issue that can be solved if we bring together the right stakeholders and figure out ways of assessing these licensures. That's just lost talent mm-hmm. sitting here. And then again, they're not then in those places where you would see them in schools, as Alex has said, or in hospitals or wherever. So let's talk about the pipeline issue. You often hear the pipeline discussion when we talk about political power and engagement. So I note that the organization OISTE went out of business, I guess, or closed. Uh, That was one that was promoting Latinos in government and running for office. That goes away. You know political power is certainly the foundation of much of removing invisibility for any group. Work for the Irish when they first got to Boston. Work for every group that's come. You know, how do you address that? And how is that being addressed? Just the pipeline issue and the political power issue. What are you all seeing that is possibly a solution? We always hear there's not any qualified Latino candidates. Um, It's very exhausting. But I'll give a a specific example. Welcome to my world. Go ahead. (laughs) Thank you. Um, So in Boston Public Schools, there is a program that is called High School to Teacher Pipeline. And it takes high school students of color who are interested in STEM fields because we know that's the economic engine Mm -hmm. of the city of Boston and works with them in terms of access to what does it mean to be a teacher, et cetera, all of those pieces. I think we need to push our higher education institutions to provide full scholarships so that we can give those to these young people so they'll stay in Boston and they don't end up having all of these loans. And part of that Mm. uh, give back would be to work in BPS for X number of years. And I use that as an example because I feel that it's such a small program and I talk about it all the time and I'm going to keep talking about it because I think it's a great example of the things that can be done. In my own organization, we are very small, but we actually hire our alumni. So we hire, we only get to hire a few every year and we make them program assistants and they're they're able to go to school. We give a flexible schedule and they're on a pipeline to become staff. Mm-hmm. I think there are lots of opportunities and people need to give these opportunities. I think when we look at the Latino community, we don't have the same networks as more affluent communities. And I think building this pipeline is going to help part of building these networks. When you look at the amount of philanthropic dollars, you mentioned OISTE, mm-hmm. less than 1% of philanthropic dollars go to community-based organizations that are, are Latino-led. We need to switch that around. I think there needs to be a value added. There needs to be more weights when you look at organizations that have a cultural piece or a linguistic piece. And then the last thing I'll say is the hiring practices. There's a woman who works at State Street, a very high level, and in her team, she talks about that she does not take any pool that does not include candidates of color. Yes, I didn't want to say it. Yvonne, <laughs> sorry. It. I Yvonne, just, no, I, no, mentioned, no, I uh, mentioned you out there. No, but I, I think interviewed her on a panel recently. Yeah, I, and, uh, I think, you know, you know yeah, she, she yeah. that's what needs to happen right. is it's not acceptable mm-hmm. to just say, oh, we don't have any candidates. Right. Um, so I think there's a lot of great opportunities to be building pipelines in, across all sectors. And by the way, Yvonne Garcia is also head of the Association of Latino Professionals for America, or ALPHA, and that's trying to network around those executive level jobs. I love her. Yes. Um, Well, so I thought I would mention two kind of pipeline programs that I think are really important that Commissioner Carlos Santiago has been supporting in the state, which is early college programs. 
And here at UMass Boston and Bunker Hill Community College and Chelsea High School, we've had a partnership where we're teaching ethnic studies. We have special classes at the high school for the seniors that are college credit, that are infused with cultural heritage and affirmation, and it builds that resiliency that that Alex was talking about. And then if these kids are already taking college classes in high school, they see that pathway and those opportunities. They're able to be mentored early on and supported. And so I do think we need to really be creating more of these early college models because our Latino students also need to go to college. Mm -hmm. And yes, our numbers are there, but the numbers going to college, particularly four-year institutions, are not acceptable. Mm -hmm. And we also um, need to actually have very intentional youth leadership programs. You know, some things like I I serve on the board of directors for the Hyde Square Task Force, which Mm -hmm. is also Mm an Afro-Latino arts-based organization. But a lot of the youth are organizers, and they're learning how to be entrepreneurs in the community, to give historical tours of the Boston Latin Quarter. So that we're kind of creating economic opportunities for the youth. And those are opportunities that really, again, build that leadership and that visibility that when, like, tourists come to Boston, they know that there are Latino neighborhoods and they can, you know, enjoy and learn from the history of our of our communities. So I definitely think building that youth leadership, mentoring, being able to see those role models, those are critical pieces that I think we can all work on together. So are you optimistic of that just having this exposed in this way? Where are you? Well, because I would like Alex to have the last word, Uh, I'm not that optimistic because I still think that we are still tend to look in terms of black and white. Mm. And I think one issue we didn't raise is that there are black Latinos. (laughs) My family are, you know, are black Mm. Puerto Ricans. And I think that we need to also think more deeply and critically about the kinds of labels and categories, how we box people in. Um, And so I think that that could be something we could explore some other time, perhaps. Optimistic, Alex? It's painful to say that I do not feel optimistic. I think it's one story, and I'm glad that there's some traction, but I think we have a very, very, very long way to go. All right. Well, we'll have to leave it there, and no doubt we'll be continuing this conversation. Thank you both for joining me. Thank Thank you. Dr. Lorna Rivera is an associate professor of women's and gender studies and Latino studies at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, and director of the Gaston Institute for Latino Community Development and Public Policy. She'll be speaking in a panel at MIT on Monday about Latino demographics. Alex Oliver Davila is the executive director of Sociedad Latina and co-founder and member of the Greater Boston Latino Network. That's it for this edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Join us next Sunday at 6 p.m. for the stories you may have missed. In the meantime, you can find our show, links to stories we discussed today, and bonus content on the web at news.wgbh.org UTR. Listen to our show on the WGBH app and take UTR with you. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Be sure to connect with us on social media. Follow me on Twitter at Callie Crossley and like us at Facebook.com slash Under the Radar WGBH. Our engineer is Doug Sugars. Andrea Aswahi is our producer. Under the Radar is a production of WGBH.